This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Alicia Snyder writes to her daughter. She wants her to have the whole story, where she came from, why Alicia placed her for adoption, and how for the next 18 years she hovered on the edges of her family, granted access by her generous parents, but always wanting more, more for her daughter and more for her. Alicia writes, I am not ready, not able to raise you. Ten years too early. I need time to grow up. To offer you, I have love and nothing else. You need more than I have to give unless I give you up. To parents who are ready, waiting to raise you. Ten years wanting with a ready home. Parents who have love and everything else too. If I do it, if I break my own heart to spare yours, will it work? Will you be happier, healthier this way? And will I ever be okay again? In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Alicia Snyder, who tells the story of a kinship adoption from the perspective of a birth mother. She reveals her thoughts on adoption, shows openness as she redefines the word family. Alicia Snyder writes personal narratives that tackle major life transitions. With unconventional lyricism, she lays out the heart of a story in bare-bones language. A.K. Snyder, pen name, is an experienced speaker and adult educator. Her conference presentations revolve around technology, project management, and the writer's process. She is a member of the Florida Writers Association, and she serves on the board of Tampa Writers Alliance. She started Your Next Inspiring Story, an online community where members share their recommendations for stories that change your perspective and leave you inspired. Rural Minnesota features prominently in her writing, where AK spent her first 30 years. Here is the interview with Alicia Snyder. In your own words, who is Alicia Snyder? Um, I would say I am a writer and a birth mom. I'm a lover of nature and technology. And I like to think about life's big transitions and always play with the words on how we describe them. Mm, right. Speaking of that, what is another word for life? Oh, another word for life, probably existence. And by that, I mean what, what you truly experience, what you are a part of, not just 
what happens around you, but what exists inside of you and that you contribute to. Mm, yeah, right. What constitutes family to you? <laughs> that one I have definitely defined over the years and spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I think it's the people that you choose, the people that you choose and that you claim and say, these are my people, this is my tribe, this is who I will take care of, who will take care of me, and we are in this together. Yeah, taking care of one another, right? I agree. I absolutely agree. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? I think we have a tendency to categorize ourselves and categorize each other and put everybody into their box and then make them stay there. And I think our biggest need is to figure out that that's all fiction, that there are no real boundaries around any of us. And while we've categorized so that we can say us and them and other, that we need to recognize that we made that up and there are no groups around us. Oh, wow. It sounds very spiritual to me. Um, how do you define spirituality? I was raised Catholic, but that doesn't necessarily reflect where I am at today. So <laughs> yeah. I think that it's a, an accumulation of the ideas that have resonated with me over time. Uh, things that I've read, things that I've heard and kind of piecemealed together a spiritual system that works for me. It's probably closer aligned to quantum theory and physics than anything else, but that's where I land. Right, right. What is love? You know, my 18-year-old my self attempted to write that for a philosophy paper, and he was not impressed because I hadn't quoted Aristotle, I hadn't quoted all the philosophy majors I was supposed to. And when I had tried to write it, I wrote it from the perspective of what I was feeling at that moment, which was a lot of grief around love. And so my instinct is to say it's a depth of feeling that other feelings don't get to. And sometimes it feels like pain and sometimes it feels like happiness. But I would say it's the deepest connection we have to anything else. Hmm. Wow. I like that, Alicia. Yeah. The deepest feeling we have with everything else. Um, what, where, and who is God to you? I don't know that I use the God so much. I do think that there is more, and I think it falls more on the energy of being connected to everything else and to everybody else. Um, I think that we are united and tied together, uh, but I don't, I don't know about the word God. <laughs> right. um, what do you think is the purpose of your life? I am hoping to find an answer for that someday. I don't know that I have an answer. I, I very firmly do not know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can usually find a purpose for this year or for this experience or for this story. But for life as a whole, I don't know that I could that I could put words to that. Wow. I like that. Never heard it that way. Finding the purpose of, yeah, for this moment even, um, not living in the future, trying to find or trying to know or solve everything, the whole mystery of life, right? How challenging was it to write the memoir Redefining Family, A Birth Mother's Path to Wholeness? Oh, it was very hard. It was the book I said I would never write. I never wanted to go back into the past where I don't spend a lot of time 
And I never wanted to have to relive like my lowest moments, which is kind of required to write a memoir about it. But it was important. It, it needed to come out. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And in what ways writing Redefining Family changed you? It was interesting when I rewrote the scenes 20 years later, right? Looking at myself at 17 and a lot of the terrible decisions I made <laughs> and a lot of me kind of working through things, I could write them now with honesty and kindness and really just respect that kid that I was and how hard she was trying and how hard life was. And it ended up being a really healing experience to just sit with that 17-year-old kid and say, yeah, I know, I know, but it doesn't end this way. And this is just a really hard moment. And it ended up being very healing. The other piece of it was when I started to really write out my family scenes. And when I wrote the whole story, so many of the scenes were other people who stepped in to help. People who showed up, my sisters who stepped in, my mom who stepped up, the people that crowded in around me and made my experience okay. It left me with a whole new set of gratitude for the people in my world. Wow, gratitude. What a powerful healing feeling, or um, I don't even know how to describe gratitude. It's an amazing, magical feeling. Can you please tell us briefly what the book is about? Yes, it is a memoir about being a birth mom in an open adoption. It starts when I am 17 and pregnant, and a, much of the book is focused on the pregnancy experience, what it's like to be 17 on your own, scared, trying to figure out what to do and not really have a lot of options. And then it goes through the grief that you go through when you place a child. It's a pretty honest depiction of the grief of losing, losing your child. And then it's the healing. It's how we, how we move on, how you build a life, how you move forward, even after your worst moments. Right, right. Really beautiful, though. Touching story. What are some of your best memories from the time you were pregnant at 17? I loved when she got the hiccups. She, when, <laughs> when my baby would get the hiccups and my entire belly would jump, and it almost always happened when we were sitting in church. I don't know if it's something about the shape of the pew that you sit in, but we'd go to church and I'd have my mom on one side and my sister and my little brother on the other, and my whole belly would jump, and that's what we'd pay attention to on Sunday. <laughs> that is so cute. <laughs> uh, What is your message, Alicia, for teenagers on pregnancy prevention? There are so many options, and I think a lot of teens are either embarrassed or they're still in the mindset that things will never happen to me. That's only to other less responsible people. <laughs> and so it's just take, take some action, go do something about it. There's a whole lot of ways to prevent pregnancy. True. <laughs> um, what is the definition of support and who surprised you at that time? The definition of support is showing up in the way they need you to show up for them. So I had a lot of people who surprised me when they, people who I thought would be supportive, who were absolutely not. And they tried, but their version of support was showing up and try to convince me to do the thing that they would do. And the people who showed up to say, okay, you have a plan. How can I help you execute your plan? 
or you don't know what your plan is, let me help you talk through what all your options are. The support is when they help you figure out what you want and then help you get it as opposed to make you obey what they want. Right. Follow their own minds, right? What they think is right. That's true. Are you against abortion? That's an interesting question. I think it's the wrong question. I think that we do not support unplanned pregnancies. We do not support women who are facing an unplanned pregnancy. And when we start going into who's pro-life and who's pro-choice, we're pitting ourselves against each other. And the only people who get punished are the women facing that decision. So we need to do better for helping uh, women face unplanned pregnancies. They need more options. They need more support. They need more um, they need more people, they need more stories, they need more everything. And fighting over whether abortion is right or wrong takes up all the energy and focus and never ends up helping the people that need the help. Mm, so true. So true. Do you know any institution out there that is helping to do this kind of work? I know a few organizations that support birth parents after placement, and they really help the recovering, getting on your feet, try and help that. As far as people that are really doing a great job doing unplanned pregnancy support, I went to a pro-life clinic. I was appalled at the amount of guilt and shame that they thought their job was. And I went to a pro-choice clinic and I was appalled at being told that adoption was absolutely the wrong thing and I didn't know what I needed. And from my personal experience, I didn't find any institution that was supposed to help me that actually helped me. Hopefully they are out there. Um, I haven't seen them. That's incredible. Yeah, that makes me wanted to do that. Like, look, do some research. Um, talk to me about adoption and the kinds of adoption uh, available out there. So it's really changed. And I think that's why it's so important we get these stories out there. The old traditional model is... It's a closed adoption. A woman places a baby. She's told that strangers who are good people will love this kid, and that's it. And she's supposed to go away and pretend that it never happened. That's the old way. And then there's open adoption, which can mean anything from you might meet the parents in advance and have a couple of visits ahead of time and then no contact after. Or it could be like my world where I got to see her growing up. I was invited to birthday parties. I was invited to hockey games. We kind of intermingled our families and we do shared family events. There's so much option when it comes to how open adoptions can be. And it's all up to negotiating it uh, before placement. Oh, wow. So it's, it was up to you really to negotiate those details. Well, yes and no. Uh, theoretically, it's up to the birth mom or the birth parents to set up the adoption. But in almost every state, whatever we signed up for is not legally binding. Ultimately, the adoptive parents have 100% legal control. So they could say anything I want to hear and then close the adoption on me as soon as everything is signed. So it's a, it's a lot of trust and a lot of making darn sure you trust those adoptive parents before you allow everything to be signed. 
So true. How did you do it? You were a very smart teenager at that time. So how did you choose the adoptive parents for Catarina? In Portuguese, we say Catarina. <laughs> It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, choosing her parents was heartbreaking to try to work through that. The more I learned about adoption and realizing how very little power I really had, the more nervous I was about choosing strangers out of a profile. I, I did sit down with the adoption agency woman and she showed me profiles and I flipped through their photos, but I didn't know how in the world I was going to trust them to keep their word after all the papers were signed. Uh, so when I started winnowing them down, I chose ones who I, I started asking, what kind of relationship do you have with the birth parents of your other children? How does that work? And get some information there. That helped. In the end, I chose to go with a couple that I already knew so that I had some faith that that would help long term. Right, right. So throughout your research, what did you find that caused um, the most pain in the adoptees? I, I did. And I hate to speak for adoptees, but it's a powerful question. And there's a lot of language that is commonplace that people think is a compliment that is not. And people will walk up to adoptees all the time and say, oh, you're adopted. You must be so lucky. You are so lucky to have the parents you have. It's such a mean thing to say, right? Like, why should this person be lucky for something that every other kid is just given? Why should they have to act grateful just for having a safe and loving home, which everybody deserves? Or people will ask them, oh, you know, you look just like your parents. Nobody ever needs to know. And so it's a lot of comments that are really not anybody's business, but that a lot of people feel the need to comment on anyway. <laughs> yeah. I think there's an overwhelming question of why. Why did you do it? Why didn't you want me? And when I talk with birth parents, it's never a, I didn't want you. There's, there's always big reasons, but the kids start asking why when they're eight, nine, 10, 11. And the answers are always way too adult, right? It's, I was struggling with addiction or abuse or mental issues or poverty. Like they, they are, the answers are out of scope for somebody who's nine. And so it's really hard to give a satisfactory answer to a kid when they really deserve the full adult answer. That's actually a big part of why I ended up writing this book, that Katerina was 18 and she kept asking big, deep questions, but I could never answer them in five minute answers. Like she needed the entire story of who I was at 17, how I functioned, how I thought, how I felt so that she could understand why. Mm. What an amazing um, inspiration you had. You had to, she was the inspiration for you to write this book. And what an amazing work, because that will also inspire other birth mothers to do the same. Oh, I would love if more birth parents would use their voices. There's so much shame and stigma attached to the role that most stay silent and their, their spouses don't know, their kids don't know. And I would love more people to speak up. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that's why we are here. So talk to me about adoption music. I never heard about them, that they existed. Um, you said that somehow, you wrote this, somehow it feels less alone when the music understands. I absolutely love this. 
music is such an amazing tool for conveying emotion, especially when words just won't cut it or when you can't identify what's going on inside of you. And so I love a good song that'll make me cry and leave me as a puddle. <laughs> and I have, <laughs> I have a number of playlists that, that start at, oh, you're feeling wretched and that slowly ratcheted up into a happy, perky mood, right? <laughs> but it takes an hour to get yeah. there. But finding the music that, that connects with you, I think that's a big part about grief. In general, grief is something you process alone. Even if you lose the same person as somebody else, you, you process it differently and you lose different dreams at different times and you work through different phases at different times. It's a very lonely, lonely space. But grief music is one of those things that you can find exactly the right song to, to fit exactly where you are at that moment, even if nobody else in your world really gets it. That is amazing. Yeah, perhaps I asked the question because I never really lost anyone around me, so I never grieved. Somebody gave you this music or you researched, you went online and you looked for them. How did you find them? A friend of my mom's gave me the CD. He had adopted his kids and somebody had given him the CD. And, and it, was such a, it was exactly how he was feeling at the moment. And so when he learned that I was going to place a child, he gave it to her. And then once I found this, then I went on, a, on an internet crusade to say, okay, there's more, there's got to be more. <laughs> so then I started searching and other people have put together full blog articles and lists of here's the top 30 songs and the top 50 songs. And there's a lot of them when you start looking for it. it. It would not have occurred to me to search until somebody gifted me that CD. Right. So you called them grief music, not adoption music. I think I have my playlist called Lament. <laughs> and it is, um, it is a mix of grief. And part of grief music is that grief comes from love. And so I have the adoption music in there as well. And it's all sort of muddled up because it's where it all starts. It's all tied together. Yeah, how wonderful. It's coming from that place of healing, because I can hear in your voice, the way you speak and you smile. So I didn't ask one. Uh, There's a question I wanted to ask before, and I didn't for some reason. What do you have to say about adoption agencies in general? Adoption agencies in general are a business. It is a business transaction. And you can put beautiful, loving, caring people in charge of the transaction, but it's a transaction for them. And their job in the end is to serve their clients and their clients are not birth parents. Their clients are people who would very much like to adopt. I'm sure there are amazingly wonderful adoption agents out there who very much care about the birth parents, but it's, it's a business. Right, wow. Uh, going back to grief, It seemed like you planned, you had, you had a grief plan. <laughs> Is that, uh, <laughs> was that the case really? Or? You know, I had the best of intentions for it. <laughs> I, I really did. I, I was young enough and dumb enough to think, okay, if I can just know what's coming, I can plan for it, make a strategy for myself and I'll be able to do it. And I, I don't think you can really plan for what grief really feels like, even if you can see it coming. But That time and effort was not wasted at all. The amount of time I spent kind of looking into how parents grieve, looking into strategies for it, 
by the time it fully hit, I wasn't caught unaware. I ended up in a tsunami where I expected a rain shower, right? I, I was caught so overwhelmed, but it wasn't with this devastating of, I have no idea how to do this. Nobody, There's no way through this. I'm never going to make it. I knew that people made it. I knew that there were actions. They were much harder than I expected. They were much slower than I expected. But I, I would absolutely prepare if you know something's coming, absolutely to know some strategies, to know where to go for help, to have some resources in your pocket. It was fully useful, even if I was very optimistic about how, how much it would help. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is cute. <laughs> really great. I, I love that, like a grief plan. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Um, you received a lot of love from birth parents, adoptees, and their parents in adoption forums. You decided to keep some of the uh, the advice given. And one, number one was no alcohol, no drugs. Number two, no pregnancy, no pets. Number three, listen to yourself. Can you talk to me a bit about these three items? It was really interesting. When I when I posted for advice, there were definite themes in the hundreds and hundreds of comments. And the top one was no alcohol, no drugs, because so, so many people come out of this experience and it's too hard. They just numb it. And what they learned is three years later or five years later or seven years later, when they sober up, all the grief is still there. It just waited for them. It's just there. They still have to process everything. It still hurts just as much. Only now they've bungled five years of their life, making the rest of life harder too. Um, it's definitely a temptation to numb everything, but it doesn't help long term. It might make that day a little easier to get through, but it's all still there. Wow, so true. Did you try to numb any of your pain at that, at that time? I really didn't. I didn't, but I also wasn't in the habit of it ahead of time. I wasn't a drinker. I didn't do, use anything when I got pregnant. So it wasn't part of my coping strategies anyway. The one that was interesting was the no pregnancy, no pets, because, oh my goodness, unplanned pregnancy at 17, you would think that when I'm finally done being pregnant, the last thing in the world I'm going to want is to be pregnant. And it was so weird at, at 18, I'm thinking, I really want to have a baby. I want a baby. And that's insane. And I wasn't in any better position to take care of one. It very much surprised me. It was wonderful to know in advance that, oh, no, 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 no. This is not just me. It's not some divine calling. It's not a sign. This is a very common thing that women experience after they place a child, this longing for a child. You still feel like a mom. There's just no child to receive your love. Right. That's amazing. It surprised yeah, me. That surprised me too. <laughs> right. right. And then the other one for listen to yourself, that's where doing the work in advance really helped. Having a very clear written list of this is what I want for you that I can't provide and spending the time to really envision what could our life be together if I made it as very best as I possibly could could it work? And to say, no, it, it can't. I think over time, as we get more and more stable, you start to lie to yourself and say, you know, I was stronger than I thought. I could have done it. I should have kept her. We'd have been okay. And it's been really healing for me to say, no, my 17-year-old my self played out every scenario. And in her mindset, 
she wasn't strong enough. And she wouldn't have gotten strong enough because she was so convinced that she wasn't. And it helps me not lie to myself. That is so wonderful. Did you go through any therapy at that time or after? Did you look to understand your mind better and your feelings or you just self? Um... I did not go to therapy afterwards and I should have. Uh, I did go to therapy many years later and it was incredibly helpful. I found a therapist I really liked maybe six or seven years later and Oh, I should have done it right away. <laughs> I should have done it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was really powerful and very helpful to sort out all sorts of things. Absolutely, you can deal with things on your own. But we think that if we have some good friends and we have some good family, they can support us. But they have probably have given us all the tools that they have already. And if you're still hurting, why not look for somebody with more tools? And none of my friends or family had ever placed a child for adoption before. They had no idea what this was. And they gave me everything they had. But what I needed was somebody who had more tools, more experience with this. Right, right. Uh, would you disclose some of the healing tools that you used, the most effective ones? A lot of it was mindset shift. There's so many tropes that people rely on that are supposed to make you feel better that kind of have a darker edge to them. Like, this is the way it was always meant to be. And people say that a lot about our family because Katerina's parents did such an amazing job raising her and her sister. And it's such a happy ending story that people look at it and say, oh, this is exactly what was destined. This is how it was meant to be. And no, there were a lot of options there. And it could have gone many, many ways. And the idea that there's one right way for everything makes every choice a win or a failure. And it makes every failure in your life your fault for making a bad choice. And that's just not how the world works. <laughs> so a lot of it was shifting my mindset away from this. There's one right path. Everything that's gone wrong is a failure and that you messed it up and trying to see another way of viewing the world. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, they call perspective, a shift in perspective, change in perspective, right? How is your relationship with Katarina these days? Uh, we have a very good relationship. We Snapchat every day, which is my favorite. I get to see her face every day. Um, <laughs> but we do live on the opposite sides of the country, which makes it hard to see each other in person very often. I feel very lucky to be as close with her as I am. And I've really kind of let her set the stage of how much she wants. She has a mom. She has an amazing mom and she's got a great dad. I'm not really needed to round out her world, but she also seems to need me in some capacity. So since there is no book of etiquette or rule book on what, on what my role is, I let her tell me what she needs from me. Wow, I love that. Um, did you have any more children? No. Nope, I have not. Oh, wow. Why not? You know, it was interesting. In the early, darkest days, I would force myself to come up with reasons that I am happy not to have kids. <laughs> like, like, oh, wow. Because, I, because <laughs> I'm not raising a kid, I can go to this festival today. Because I'm not a single mom, I have the freedom to travel. I have the freedom to go to South America. It, nobody cares that I have to work late. Right. And so to help myself be okay, I would find a way to be grateful 
for not being in a single mom position. And I did it over and over and over. And, you know, if you find a way to be grateful about something every day for a decade, you end up being really grateful for those things. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to add more. Sometimes you don't need to add anything (laughs) else. That's true. So true. So true, Alicia. Um, My final question, I guess. In the chapter, My Wish for You, um, you say truly emotional things um, that made me cry. But at the end, you wrote, you deserve more than a life with me. So I guess my last, last question for this section is, do you have any regrets? No, I, I don't. I don't have any regrets. And it's not because the scenario was easy or perfect, but because I really did the very best that I knew how to do at that time. And you can't regret that. You you can't say, oh, I should have put in more time or effort or tried harder if you gave everything you had. So I don't know that there's more I could do. Beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Um, how do you define success? What is success to you? You know, that's a little bit more like the purpose question. It seems to be a moving target. Um, <laughs> I, I think that... I continue to redefine what success looks like for me because when I put together huge, big lists, they seem too far away. And when I put together little goals, I tend to achieve them. So I think success for me is putting out a vision of what I want my next few years or my next 10 years to look like and then constructing a life that matches that. And inevitably that keeps changing. But if I'm continuing to design the life I love, then that's that success. Yeah, absolutely. I like the way you connect being realistic with being successful too. Uh, what is to be strong? So I struggle with this one a little bit, partly because I had an identity very much wrapped up in strength, that I was strong. And by holding on to that word, that I am a strong person, I feel like I kept putting myself in positions that forced me to prove it over and over. (laughs) I kept making life chaotic and I kept inviting in all that drama (laughs) to prove that I was strong. And it was such a ridiculous thing. Um, I think there's a difference between strong and resilient. And where strength is, yes, you will make it through. Resilient is I can handle whatever comes my way, which might include a happy, peaceful next five years. And that that's wonderful too, where identifying as strong doesn't really allow for that. Wow. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? I think it was that I was still kind of creating some of my own chaos. Not that I was causing it, but that I was attracted to it. That when somebody else was in pain, I would be the first one in and the first one to help and the first one to volunteer. And I I had that in my head that that makes me a good person. That makes me strong. That makes me helpful. And it made me a very miserable person who was always in strife, always struggling. And it took me a long time to realize I wasn't helping. I thought I was helping. I was doing all the actions that are supposed to be helping, <laughs> but... <laughs> But it didn't actually help anybody. It was a lot of enabling. And when I started to back off and say, you know, I don't know that this person really wants help. I'm going to let them try to do it on their own. 
they just found somebody else. It's not that they got better. They just found somebody else willing to do the same as I was doing. And I was making things worse, not better. Um, that took me a long time. Oh, interesting. Um, do you love yourself unconditionally? Nope. There's definitely conditions there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for your honesty. I'm working on that one. <laughs> right. Um, I guess all of us do. What is another word for healing? I think it's just growth. Growth and change. I think people try to heal without changing who they are. And they try to become better, but without giving up anything that they are. And it's there, there is a give and take to it. And if you want to heal, you have to become a different type of person who now behaves differently and thinks differently. And yeah, it's a, a change. Wow, that's a very interesting um, answer you gave me too. If you knew you would die soon in the sense of losing the body, would you make any change in your life? Oh yeah, I spend way too much at work if I'm not going to <laughs> if I'm not going to need a retirement, I spend way too much time working. <laughs> All right. Um, right now I live very far from my family and so I try I try to get home a few times a year, uh, but there'd definitely be more travel, more trips home. Mm, close to your family, right. Do you believe in life after death? I believe there is more. I don't know what that more looks like. I don't think we evaporate as beings, but I don't know that there's another place or another round. I don't know. Mm, yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? That chasing happiness is not a way to get happiness, but building a life that you are proud of and feel fulfilled in is. And that when that target moves, you have to move with it. That you shouldn't expect that once you've reached a place where you're satisfied, that you'll stay there and then fight against that. That it's okay to keep redesigning who you are My and what God. your life means. I think in life, we are supposed to continue to grow and supposed to, and we're supposed to continue to change and getting stuck is the thing that is the least healthy possible. So true. Thank you so much, Alicia. It has been um, meaningful, genuine, uh, warm. Um, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Oh, thanks for taking the time. It was great to talk with you. Yeah. Where can we find more information about you, your book and services, future projects? Everything is at aksnyderbooks.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye for now, Alicia. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Alicia Snyder, please visit her website, aksnyderbooks.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aiden Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>